you will, open your Bibles back to Romans chapter 12. And I'm just going to start here by reading verses 9 through 13 again. So Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. It says this, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So this morning we are going to continue what we started last week, talking about Christian community. And I want to look at Christian community through three main points here, three aspects of Christian community. It's these three points. The nature of Christian community, the function of Christian community, and then the key to Christian community. So the nature of the function of, and then the key to. And so let's just jump right in here. Point one, the nature of Christian community. And I want to start in verse 10. Because I think this is really foundational to seeing the nature of Christian community. If you look at the beginning of verse 10, Paul tells us there at the beginning to love one another with brotherly affection. So if you are here last week, you remember he, he compared the church to a body, Right, with all its different parts. Well, this week we're seeing that he's comparing it to a family. And so what we see here is that salvation is a family-creating event. When you are adopted by God, when he becomes your Abba Father, guess what? You also get a bunch of brothers and sisters. Okay, right? You come in, you get adopted into a family, and the brothers and sisters aren't optional. So other people in the church, other believers, others who know Jesus, they are your brothers and sisters. And let me just say, this is really helpful for setting expectations about Christian community. Because you know what families are? They're messy. Right? Maybe, maybe you're like, mine's not messy. <laughs> Every family I've ever been a part of, it's messy. And that makes sense. That makes sense because it's possible that you could get together this perfect blend of friends and create this friend group where because of your temperament and because of your interest, that it's not very messy, right? You could hand select that group and put that group together and maybe have a community that isn't very messy. But here's the thing about a family. You don't get to choose who's in it, right? I mean, it's possible that your brother or your sister, you would have nothing to do with them if you hadn't grown up in the same house. Isn't that right? Anyone with me? Anyone admit that? It's possible. And so that means because a church is a family, that we are a group of people who come together united around the fact that we have a father who has adopted us. And that may mean that there are people around us, and it probably does mean that there are people around us who we don't necessarily get along with. It may mean that there are people who have different interests than us, and different temperaments than us, and different life experiences than us, and different ethnicities than us. Actually, it should mean all of these things. We should be very diverse, even in our local church. 
Because what unites us is not our ethnicity. What unites us is not our temperament. What unites us is not our interest. It's the fact that we have the same father, right? And we are a family adopted by him. And so just know, it will not always be smooth sailing. And let me just say, that does not take God by surprise. (laughs) It does not take Jesus by surprise. Here's how I know. You know, Jesus actually got to hand-select his community, right? He got to go out and he got to call these disciples to come and be around him. And it's really interesting, the, the people that he chose shows that he did not fear the mess. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. It'll be on the screens. Here's the list of Jesus' 12 disciples. It says, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I underline there two of these men, okay, because they're unlike the others. They're actually given a description that the other ones don't have. Matthew tells us that he is a tax collector, and you remember back in our series in Luke a while ago, right, we talked about tax collectors a lot. These were the, the, the guys, the Jews, who were willing to go along with Rome. Because remember, the Jews are under Roman occupation. They're going along with Rome. They're willing to go and take up these taxes that are oppressing their own people. And then you have Simon the Zealot. He wasn't willing to do that. Okay? The Zealots were not happy about the fact that they were under Roman oppression, so much so that they were willing to kill people to get out of that. And Jesus is choosing his disciples, and he says, Matthew, come here. Simon, Come here, sit down, eat together, talk together, go out there and minister together. I imagine that being messy, don't you? (laughs) Can you imagine taking someone from the far right of our political spectrum and the far left of our political spectrum and put them in a community group every week and say, eat together, right? Eat together, talk politics, right? I'm sure politics came up around the campfire. There's no way it didn't. Talk about what you think about this. It was messy. And even if you take politics out of it, we see examples in Scripture over and over again about how dysfunctional this little community was. So if you are a community group leader in here and you are worried about the dysfunction of your group, Jesus was a community group leader with a dysfunctional group, okay? Even he couldn't have a functional group. Because we see this group and they're sitting around. I mean, here's one example. I I could go to many, but here's one example. It's the night before Jesus is about to die. He's telling them some very important things. He's instituting the Lord's Supper, which we'll take here in a bit. And you know what they're doing? They're arguing about who the greatest is. (laughs) That's what they're doing. He's doing this really important thing, and this whole group is sitting there arguing, no, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. That's what they're doing. It was dysfunctional. It was messy. It was messy. But here's the thing, that didn't take Jesus by surprise. It didn't take God by surprise. And so Christians should expect that there will be brokenness in our communities. But we can rest in the fact that when community is messy, it is not messing up God's plans. But we need to expect it. 
right? Expectations are key. I've seen this just in my 11 years of ministry at this point. I've seen so many communities destroyed by unrealistic expectations. People come in and they don't expect the mess. And that's the big problem. (laughs) They forget that they're walking into a group that is made up of sinners just like them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way in his classic on community life together. He said, He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. When you come into a community and you have a dream, and you put that dream over the people who are actually there, you destroy the community. You'll never find true community if you hold on to that dream and don't get real about the people who are actually around you, that they're sinners. I love this. One theologian said it this way. He said, to make community work, we have to forgive each other for not being God. Forgive each other for not being God. We have such a hard time doing that, don't we? We hold others to the standard that we know that even we can't meet. I'd also encourage you about this. Remember that that true community takes time. It doesn't happen in a week. It doesn't happen in a month. It doesn't. It's never going to be efficient. It's slow. It's always going to involve interpersonal conflict. It doesn't happen in a hurry. But this is why it's key that we remember what the church is. It's a family. And families are devoted to each other. Families stick with each other, at least a good family sticks with each other through that. There's a commitment there even when times are tough. And So let me just ask, this is a time just to ask ourselves, what's your commitment level like to your church family? If you're a member here at West Park, maybe you're a visitor and you have another home church, think about that. What's your commitment level like? Is it a family level commitment Is that where you are, a family-level commitment? Because here's the thing, you know, personally, I'll I'll admit this. I pride myself on my ability to take advantage of free trial memberships of streaming services. Okay? (laughs) Anyone with me? Right? Like, I just, my goal is to never pay for a streaming service. I just want to, I'll make as many email addresses as I need to, find as many credit cards as I need to, to not pay and just get those free trials. Here's the thing. Some people treat the church exactly like that. I want the services that that streaming service can give me. I just don't want to commit to it, right? I want to be able to get out whenever I want to. I don't want to pay anything for it, right? I don't want to give anything to it. A lot of people treat the church like that. How are you treating the church? Is it a family where you look around and you see these people as brothers and sisters who need you and you need them? Or is it a streaming service where you can just duck anytime you want? Because the church is not here primarily as a service to you. It's a family for you to love others and commit to others and help each other follow Jesus. Our goal as Christians is to grow to look more and more like Jesus. And we can never do that without community. We can never do that without community. That, only, and that, only, that community only comes through commitment and intentionality. I love this. Here's what Joseph Hellerman says in, in his book on community. He says, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible 
of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. I'd encourage you, if you don't have it, there's an easy application for you here. If you don't have Christian community, find it, expect it to be messy, and commit to staying until God makes it clear that you need to move. Because he might, right? I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. He might make it clear that you need to move. But that's a big decision, right? That's a big decision if the church is a family. Let's move to point two. The function of Christian community. The function of Christian community. Verse 9, Paul calls us to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And that's what we're called to do as a community. To help each other hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. I think this is helpful. I thought this was just a really good, succinct definition of what I'm talking about when I talk about Christian community. This is from John Mark Homer. He says, Christian community is intentional relationships around the way of Jesus. That's what it is. Intentional relationships around the way of Jesus. So 12 people meeting together in a home doesn't necessarily mean you have Christian community. It has to be intentional. And it has to be. Our goal as a Christian community is to help each other follow Jesus. Right? We can get together every week and talk about sports or politics or whatever you want to talk about. But our goal is to help each other in this journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. Hebrews 10 says we should stir up one another to love and good works. That's our goal. So what does that look like specifically? What does that actually look like? So let me, let me share something with you, and you may hear it, and you say, that's just dumb, and you can just forget it. That's fine. This is really helpful for me, okay? So I want to, this is just, as I, as I process and think through community and what intentional community looks like, I think of it in four spheres, okay? Four spheres, and you can see them up there, these four spheres. And, and, and let me just say, I'm getting this from an idea in sociology called proxemics, but I'll, I'll show you in a second that it actually is very biblical, okay? But here's how, here's how I think of intentional community. We need, ideally, as Christians, we need communities that fit into all four of these spheres. So one is not necessarily better than the other. We actually need healthy relationships in all of these spheres of community. And so let me just walk through them really quick. So, so there on the right, you see the public space. This, this is a group of 70 people or plus, 70, over 70 people. It's a large group. So at West Park, you can know what this is, right? This is our public space, okay? This is our public community. Our, our public community here at West Park is all the members who are followers of Jesus, which is over 800 plus kids and a couple hundred probably attenders who love Jesus. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. These are people who we're called to live in community with. But let's just be real can you be intentional with 800 plus people? No, right? You, you just, you simply don't have the time, okay? I mean, you can't act intentionally, but you can't be fully known 
and loved by 800 people to the level that we need to be known and loved. But we still have a role. We can still minister to each other. I mean, here's an example, okay? Just think about what we're doing when we're singing together on a Sunday morning. We are acting as a community. We are encouraging one another. We have hundreds of people in this room, and we're singing both to God and to each other, encouraging each other, like, look how great our God is, right? Or be, you know, have gratitude for what God has done for you. We're singing these things to God and also to each other to encourage each other. Let me give you an example of that. I remember I just have this vivid memory, and this has happened plenty of times here as well, but this really sticks out in my head. Um, we were at a, a church in Louisville when we were up there for seminary. And there was this, this man, his wife was sick, and I remember the whole process of just his wife being sick, and eventually, um, eventually she went on to be with the Lord. And along that process, I never had a conversation with this guy. Never had a conversation with this guy. I, we, we prayed for him. We knew about it. We heard the updates. But I, I didn't know him, right? But I remember... His wife passed away, and then we gathered a few days later for a worship service, and I remember looking over to his normal spot, and he was there. I remember that took me by surprise, but he was there, just there with all, you know, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and I remember the first song we sang was, It Is Well With My Soul, and I remember at that point I'd been married for like two years, and I'm looking over at this man who I do not know. And he is singing, it is well, it is well with my soul at the top of his lungs. And that ministered to me in a way that I can't even explain. To see that even if the worst case scenario happens, it's well with my soul. It's well with my soul. We were in community, right? We were in community. He didn't know me, I didn't know him, but I'm thankful for him, right? So we need that kind of community. Then we need to level in, okay? Within that, there, there, there's, there's going to be about 20 to 50 people that we should know, right? But we're not fully known by them, right? We know them, but we're not fully known by them. These are, these are the, what I think it calls the social space. So these are the people who you make small talk with at church. These are the people you sit by in equipping class. These are the people you sit by in the worship service. And you need these people, right? These are the people where if I have a problem and I know they have an expertise, I know I can go to them and ask them a question about it. Right? I know that if I have a plumbing issue, there's people that I can talk to. Right, Joe? Okay? Not, to put, not to call you out in front of everyone, but there's people that I can talk to. Right? I can get advice from. I can have them point me to someone. We need these, kind, these, these loose tie relationships. But here's the key. It's very easy to stay there, isn't it? But we have to go deeper than that. We need that personal space there, that 5 to 12. These are the people that you're doing life with, as we like to say. These are, the, these are the people that you're spending time with. These are the people that you're praying for. These are the people you're studying the Bible with. You're on mission together. You're bearing each other's burdens. In verses 11 and 12, Paul tells us, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. This is the group that is encouraging you to persist in these things, and you're encouraging them back. So I'm sure you can put it together. This is why we have community groups, right? Like that, that wasn't just because, oh, everyone else is doing it. Let's get community groups. No, it's because we need 5 to 12 people who we're committing to doing life with, 
who we're committing to saying, I'm going to let you know me. We're committing that I'm going to come together. For me, it's on a Thursday night, and we're going to have dinner together. And we're going to talk about life, and we're going to be open together. And I know that I don't have to be on mission alone because you're going to be right there beside me. And I know that, that if I'm going through a hard time, that you're going to be right there beside me. You're committing to me, even though we may not be exactly the same, even though we may have different temperaments, even though we may have different interests, even though we may vote differently in the upcoming election. I know that you're right there beside me. We need those people, right? We need that commitment, those people to intentionally follow Jesus with. And then we actually need to go even deeper with that than that with some. We need that intimate space of two to four. These are the people that you're most open with. This is your spouse. You have a spouse. This is your best friend. This is your accountability partner. This is the people where nothing is off the table. This is the people where we talk about confessing sin to each other. These are the people where if I need to confess sin, I'm calling you up and I'm letting you know right now because I don't want that to stay in the darkness. And I'm getting it out in the light to you. We need that group of people also. I love that. I call this group of people my surgeons. Okay? My surgeons. Surgeons cut you, but only in order to heal you. These are the people that you trust that if you need it, they're going to cut you with their their words. They're going to tell you when you've wandered off. But it's all out of love. And it's because they have determined that they are going to help you get past that finish line. Like the guy in the marathon who pulls a hamstring and can't move anymore. They're going to come pick you up and carry you till you finish that. Right? That's that group of two to four. You see that? We need all of these things. And let me point out, you may be sitting here thinking, that's dumb. Okay, whatever, sociology, whatever. Okay, let me point out, there's a pretty obvious example of this in Scripture. Jesus, okay? You remember his communities, okay? Remember this? Jesus had a public crowd. That was with him of 70 plus. Jesus had the broader disciples, the men and women that followed him around. Right? We put that there in that 20 to 50. Jesus then had his 12 disciples that we talked about. His, his community that was relying on each other that he was more personal with. And then finally, do you remember, he had that intimate space where he had three. With Peter, James, and John. Right? He modeled that for us. And let me, emphasize, let me emphasize this also, just in case you're, you're hearing me wrong. I need to emphasize. The goal is not to push a bunch of people into that intimate space. As an introvert, that sounds horrible, okay? Like, that, that just makes me want to die. Like, that just sounds awful. Like, that's my worst nightmare, to get a bunch of people into that space. But what it does mean is that we need people in all of these spaces. Because let's be honest. Let's be honest. It's very easy to stick out there because it's hard to be fully known. It's hard to be fully known. And sometimes we like to not be fully known, don't we? <laughs> like, we don't want people to be fully known, to fully know us. So let me just encourage you to, to, to watch. Please, pray about this. Take the steps you need to, to walk into those more intimate spaces. Because it is scary. It is vulnerable. You are taking a risk. But I love this. Here's what one author said. He said, there can be no vulnerability without risk. There can be no community without vulnerability. There can be no peace and ultimately no life without community. We need people around us. We can't do it alone. Let's move to point three, final point. And this one is really important. Okay. The key to Christian community. 
the key to Christian community. So we know what it is. It's a family of men and women adopted by God. We know what it does. It's intentional relationships with people who help us follow Jesus. But now how do we make it healthy? How do we make it healthy? And when I say healthy, I'm not saying not messy. Right? It'll still be messy. <laughs> It'll still be complicated. But how do we make it healthy? Through studying this passage, I've become convinced that the answer is actually at the end of verse 10. If you'll look there. Paul tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. As a very competitive person myself, I was interested to find, this is the only biblical command that tells us to compete with someone. And Paul is calling us to compete with one another to show honor. This is a call to humility. Right? It is a call to put others above ourselves, to think about them more than we think about ourselves. And I want to say that humility is the key to healthy Christian community. It is. You cannot have healthy Christian community without great humility. Amen. It's on the flip, but let me, let me take it on the flip side here. On the flip side, the opposite of humility is pride. And if humility is key to Christian community, pride is the great killer of Christian community. It is the great killer of Christian community. So before we talk about that, let's, let's talk about pride. And I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis a lot here because he wrote, because I always quote C.S. Lewis a lot. But for this specifically, he, he talked a lot about pride and he did some great work on it. And I'll start with this. This is his, his definition of pride. And it doesn't get any better than this. Here's what he says. Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Oh, <laughs> Ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. And so pride makes everything about you. Pride is about what you can get for yourself. And so thinking about community, pride causes you not to think about the people God has put around you. Instead, you're always thinking about what you can get out of those people and how you measure up to them. And I love that Paul in this passage turns humility into a competition because pride at its core is a competition. That's what it's about. It's about competing with everyone around you. Here's Lewis again. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. And so pride makes everything about besting others. And so you can never fully enter into a community because your ego is always comparing, right? You're always playing that comparison game. Are they prettier than me? Do they have a better job than me? Is their family better than mine? How am I looking, right? <laughs> Did that just sound smart, what I said? Right? I'm not thinking about what you're telling me because I'm trying to think of a really good response to what you're telling me so that you think that I know what I'm talking about. Anyone? Anyone admit that? I, I, I'm there. Right? I'm there. That's pride. That's pride. And so community, because of our pride, community becomes a means to an end of our own satisfaction because everything is about us. And when that's the truth, you always leave community group or you always leave church feeling snubbed because people didn't give you the approval that you think you deserve. That's what pride does to us in community. But we can't stop there. Maybe you hear that and you say, well, that ain't me. 
right? I know I'm not the prettiest, okay? I know I'm not the richest, that's for sure. I know that I'm not the most talented. I'd never be that arrogant. But notice this. Pride doesn't always mean feeling superior to other people because feeling inferior to other people is also pride. Think of that definition. Let's put it back up there again. Lewis says, pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. When you feel inferior, you're still focused on yourself, right? You're still doing the calculation game. It's the same thing. You're just not winning. <laughs> That's the difference. You're still, you're still thinking, how are they perceiving me? You're still thinking, am I prettier than them? Am I more successful than them? You're just coming to the conclusion that you're not, okay? It's still pride. It's still all about you. A prideful person is always competing. So let's just say it how it is. That's probably why a lot of us struggle to go deeper into those inner circles. Because that's opening yourself up. That's letting people lovingly criticize you. And in our pride, we don't want criticism, do we? I read something the other day. Someone said, when I said I'd like your criticism, I meant your compliments, right? Like, that's what I want. I want you, I want you to tell me how good I did, not actually tell me how bad I did. That kills you if you're a prideful person. Now, compare that kind of competition to the competition Paul calls us to. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Compete, but compete to be the best listener. Compete, but compete to brag on others the most. That's humility. It's others-focused. Here's Lewis again. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. The humble person is not constantly calculating how they look. They're just paying attention to other people and giving them honor because they know they're in the presence of an image bearer of God. Paul tells us in verse 9, let love be genuine. It takes great humility to let love be genuine, doesn't it? The word there is actually in the Greek. It literally means don't be a hypocrite. <laughs> and a hypocrite is the Greek word for an actor. Don't be an actor. It takes great humility to walk into a room and not be an actor. Verse 13 we're told to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Of course a humble person would do that, right? Because I'm not worried about how rich I am. I'm not worried about what it means if I hang out with you, what other people are going to think. I'm just thinking about how I can love you. So how do you know? Listen, think about this. How do you know that you've been with a humble person? How do you know that when you leave lunch with a humble person that that's what that was? Here's the thing. Lewis says it this way. He says, it won't be that they're constantly talking about how big of a nobody they are. That's not it. That's actually a form of pride. Okay? When you leave meeting with a humble person, here's what you'll know about them. They were very happy, no matter what's going on in their life. And they were genuinely interested in what I have to say. <laughs> I have a couple humble people that I meet with, and I always leave thinking, I am the most interesting man in the world, right? <laughs> because they actually care what I'm saying. That's when you know you've met with a humble person. Here's Lewis one more time. One more time. This is too good not to share. This is from the screw tape letters, which is always hard to quote because it's all backwards. Okay, so the screw tape letters is a senior demon writing to a junior demon about how to tempt people. And so the enemy here is Jesus. Okay, so you have to do some kind of twist in your head here. But here's what the senior demon says. He says, the enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind 
in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if he had been done if it had been done by another the enemy wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents. I want to become like that, don't you? I want to become like that. I want our communities to become like that. I want our church to become like that. How do we do it? How do we do it? It would take a lot longer than I have to list all the ways, okay? So let me pick one. Let me pick one. To put an end to the ego calculation, we need to lean even harder into the gospel. To put an end to the ego calculation, we have to lean even harder into the gospel. We need to know how much we are loved. Tolkien said what we need to put an end to humility is we need the praise of the praiseworthy. That's what, we, that's, that's what brings about humility. So let me close with a story. I've told this before, maybe you remember it, but I think this summarizes this really well. So in high school, I, I played um, football down at Hardin Valley Academy down the road and I uh, played quarterback. And so going into my senior year, we'd had a horrible junior year. It's not good. But my senior year, we had pretty high hopes that we were going to be a pretty good team. And, uh, you know, the week before the game, you have these scrimmages and you're getting ready for, for the season to start. And so we have one last scrimmage before this season. A lot of expectations going into it. And, you know, if you're an athlete, maybe you have had those days at some point where things just aren't going your way, right? Like the shot's not going in, the drive is just constantly slicing. It's just everything that could go wrong goes wrong. Maybe you've had those days. This was that day for me, okay? We were over at a scrimmage over at South Doyle High School. See, you know, the, the, the scrimmage starts off, we go down the field, first drive, I throw an interception in the end zone. Second drive, we get the ball back, first pass, interception, return for a touchdown. Third drive, I'm trying to run, and I was never very good at that. I get caught, get hit, fumble the ball, gets returned for a touchdown. Okay? That's the first three drives. Okay? Good day, right? Good day. You know, coach said, we'll, we'll, we'll pick this back up later. Come on over here with me, right? Bad, bad day. And you know, thankfully, it, it turned out okay. We had a pretty good season. But, but I remember getting on the bus that day and feeling, I mean, I'm 17 years old, right? I felt as low as I've ever felt, okay? I felt as low as I've ever felt. And I remember going to school, or no, going to, it wasn't school yet. I was going to practice the next day. And I remember the ego calculation that I'm talking about. Every interaction with a teammate, I'm thinking, do they still like me? Right? right? Like, do they still want to follow me as their quarterback? Like, like are we okay? Right? Like, do, should I even be here? I remember, and I just was going down this, this rabbit hole of just self-pity. And I remember, this was the next day, and, and I, I come home at one of my lowest to that point in my life. And I come home, and I go straight to my room. And I remember it plain as day that there's this little note sitting on my bed. And I remember exactly what it said. I, I, I picked it up. It was from my dad. And it said this. It said, I love you, and I'm proud of you, not because you're a football player. 
I love you, and I'm proud of you, not because you're a football player. And I remember in that moment, I can remember it vividly, 13 years later, a weight coming off my shoulder. Because I knew that whether I was all district or the season was a complete failure or it was somewhere in the middle, guess what? I was loved. (laughs) And it wasn't based on my performance. And that brought a humility in me because I wasn't playing that ego calculation game anymore. I was just secure in my father's love. How much more secure should we be in our heavenly father's love? Because every community we walk into, every church service we walk into, every interaction we have, we are going knowing what Jesus says about us. He's saying, I love you. And it's not based on your performance because I'm the one who performed for you. I'm the one who lived the life you couldn't live. And you know how much I love you? I was willing to die for you. That's how much I love you. And so as Christians, we come together in community around that. And that should make for some seriously humble communities. A community that truly believes that could humbly love God could humbly love people. And out of that, you know what I bet we're going to do? We're going to impact the world, right? We're going to impact the world. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for that love. (laughs) Thank you um, for what's true about us, that we we get to, to live in, that we are who you say we are, dearly loved. We didn't deserve it, (laughs) nothing we did, but you loved us anyway. And so I pray, I just, I pray that that supernatural power of the gospel will permeate every interaction that we have this week and going forward. That out of that, we will come into every every interaction knowing that we don't have to impress because we have the praise of the praiseworthy. And so we can enter into these interactions with that kind of freedom out of that love that you've shown us. And at this church, I, I pray that when people in Knoxville think about West Park Baptist Church, the word that comes to their mind is, they are humble. They love God, they love people, they impact the world, and they are humble. Lord, let that be true of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.